Hello and welcome to the revised, renewed and rejuvenated Auto Futures podcast. I'm Tom Fogden, the editor of Auto Futures, and you join us today in the beautiful French capital for the Autonomy Paris trade show. We have a brilliant roster of exclusive interviews lined up for you over the next two episodes, and we'll be speaking to the likes of Bolt, Lyft and Serco to get the latest insights on the issues affecting the mobility sector. But without further ado, let's get straight into our first interview. Volta Trucks is one of the hottest startups in the mobility space and recently raised 230 million euros in its Series C funding round at the end of February. We're joined now by Carl Magnus Norden, Volta's founder and executive chairman. Carl Magnus, thank you very much for your time today. Very nice to be here and speak to you. Thank you. Can you explain for us the process behind designing the Volta Zero? Uh, yes, as I, uh, we really... Uh, started from a blank sheet of paper. We said the design of a diesel truck that you convert is, is not optimal. Uh, we wanted to, to start from, from scratch with an electric drivetrain as a base. So what is that? Uh, the, the motor is much smaller, or the engine is much smaller than an electric uh, motor. So we, mm. we placed the, uh, uh, the motor on the rear axle and we have the battery in, in within the ladder frame mm. of the truck. That gives us the opportunity to totally redesign the cab. Yeah. And that's really what we have focused our design on. Great. To what extent did using the electric motor and battery give you free reign to create the kind of unique look for the cab that the Volta Zero has? Well, maybe as, as I said, it, that gave us the opportunity to do that, and and we uh, with that design we could address many other problems with trucks. Mm. It's not only electric, reducing CO2 emissions, reducing NOx particles, noise, etc. That's very very good that you do by electric drive, but the design also uh, our design could also mitigate some of the other problems mm. uh, the safety issues for for the drivers yeah. that normally in distribution traffic jump down 15 20 25 times a day uh, that leads often to to problems with knees hips and joints yeah. uh, also the high driving position or seating position of a normal driver in the diesel truck uh, creates blind spots yeah. These blind spots are uh, contributing to a lot of accidents with pedestrians and bikers in, in city environments. Mm. Uh, and and we, could, we could reduce the height and we could maximize the, the direct vision for the driver. Mm. Thinking about the, uh, you know, reducing the height and maximizing the vision for the driver, are you surprised that more companies are not taking a similar, similar approach to you? Honestly, when I started this project uh, more or less five years ago, I expected everybody to do it much faster. <laughs> uh, so, so, but the more I understand about the industry, the more I understand about their manufacturing, their uh, um, uh, their supply chain issues, etc. Mm. I, I more and more understand why they want to postpone it. Right. Because uh, they, the, the whole business model is, of course, long series. The electric part of uh, of uh, the market uh, and the, the the kind of mid and last mile is a relatively small part. Mm. If you are a big scale OEM manufacturer, you want to standardize parts yeah. uh, and you want to standardize design, etc. So. 
I see a lot of reasons why postponing is quite a nice alternative. It also comes down to the service network, comes to the sales way of selling the trucks, mm. after sales service, and, and a number of things that has to be changed to do what we're doing. And there we have the advantage of coming from uh, a clean sheet, basically, yeah, when it comes to, to all these things. Mm. So, yeah, I understand it better, but it's not a good answer, but then... Uh, <laughs> I suppose it gives it's better for you, right? If if everyone else postpones as well. Well, in a way, yes. Uh, but if we look from a sustainability point of view, of course, I would like all trucks in the city to be electric. Yeah. Uh, I hope that the big OEMs will follow uh, quickly. I, I still. Uh, with, um, if you have enough self-confidence, probably you say we will still be the leader because mm. we will be the first one to scale uh, and, uh, and, and there is so much more improvements to do. So um, I think even in five, ten years time we can be the leader. You're planning to release a seven and a half ton as well as a larger 12 and a half and 16 ton versions of the Volta Zero. Have the changes in payload forced you to adapt any elements from the original design or does it is it kind of a bit more modular and you can scale up and scale down quite easily? No, it's really uh, the 16 ton where we start with and the 18 ton that we are now developing, uh, it's, it's basically one family. Right. Correctly, uh, as you point out, when we go to smaller vehicles, seven, especially seven and a half ton trucks, mm the payload and the, is much more important or we have to uh, to reduce the weight uh, of the vehicle. So mm. we're looking at different materials, we're looking at different uh, way of putting it together and so on. So, so it is uh, it's, it's quite the new development. In your mind, what do urban city streets and urban deliveries look like by 2030? Well, as you know, there is lots of things happening uh, right now. I, I think the, the pace of electrification will will speed up. Mm. Uh, the, the, the the pace of cities trying to address the problems is speeding up. We see it today. Of course, Paris is a le global leader when it comes to this. I'm sure many other cities are looking at the Paris example and saying, OK, we want to do something similar. Mm. Uh, as you know, there is subsidies uh, initially, right now, which the, the early adopters will uh, take part of. There is penalties like you have in, in, in London, mm. uh, which is uh, probably a method that will stay forever because it's bringing revenue to, <laughs> to the city. Uh, but what is that saying? There will, they will be, uh, and we see it here on the, on the, the autonomy show, we see a lot of uh, cargo bikes. Yeah. Uh, we see a lot of development on that side. So I, personally, I think we will see quite a dramatic change of the distribution chain to, to inner cities. Uh, probably a little bit smaller hubs, more central. I would like to see a, a, a development where you can drive, we can drive in a 16, 18 ton truck to a, a part of the city and you have 20 cargo bikes or something picking mm. up the cargo and distributing the last, not even the last mile, the last few hundred meters or something. Yeah. So um, I think, uh, and this movement, uh, I've seen it more and more over the last couple of years. I mean, two, three years ago, uh, you know, this with cargo bikes was a little bit of a, 
a fun idea. Mm. Now we're seeing more and more. When we talk to our customers, uh, somebody like David Schenker, they're very pro. They test, they uh, iterate. Uh, so I, I think we will see quite a different pattern in, in uh, 2030 or in 10 years' time. Certainly sounds exciting. Carl Magnus, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, and uh, nice to be here. Lyft is synonymous with mobility in the US, offering ride-sharing, e-scooters and e-bikes. So what is the company doing at a trade show in Paris? Caroline Sampanaro, the company's vice president for transit, bike and scooter policy, joins us now and should be able to shed some light. Caroline, does Lyft have ambitions to expand into Europe? Listen, uh, we love Europe and we're so happy to be here at this, at this amazing event. Um, as you know, Lyft is the largest bike share provider in North America. Um, and we run um, the, one of the largest bike share programs in the world, City Bike, in New York City. Mm. And so we are we're thrilled at the idea of being in more cities and bringing our amazing hardware and software solution uh, to, to micromobility. So we don't have any plans. <laughs> I'm not going to break any news. But we are, we are certainly excited about that opportunity in the future. That is a shame you won't be breaking any news. I mean, we'd, we'd love to break it here. But... Um, <laughs> You offer the Lyft community program for bikes and scooters uh, in North America. Can you explain what that is and why you chose to start it? Absolutely. Um, you know, first and foremost, when we think about how we design our micromobility programs, we're thinking about providing a safe and reliable service and also an equitable one. Mm. So a large focus that Lyft has taken since we took over um, the largest bike share programs in the United States in 2018 is expanding those programs to more neighborhoods yep. and also um, investing in that lower income membership program that we offer. Mm. And the idea there is that it should be um, you know, easy to get on a bike or a scooter and it should be affordable depending on your income. Yep. So we work with our local partners at the state and city level to design a program that matches other income eligible programs that are in existence and yeah. we and we match that to ours. Okay. So we're providing a you know a lower price point in some cases to make sure that this program is serving as many people as possible. Yeah. And you mentioned moving out to kind of lower income areas. Was it true that before then, you know, the mobility bikes were kind of reserved for inner city centers where perhaps there were more professionals and things like that? And that's when you've looked to change. I think you know the beginnings of bike share vary all over the world. In the United States, um, maybe because we have such an auto-centric transportation culture, yeah. I think there was an interest to uh, prove that bike share could work, and also mm. to pr to prove that it could happen without any taxpayer dollars. Right. And so the origin story there in the United States was a private sponsor mm. and a private company providing all of the funding to make the programs happen. And as the systems have grown over the years, we've proven that they can be more than that yeah. and that they warrant public investment because they're providing such an essential transportation service. Mm. They also have started in central business districts, to your point, but that is more so about the density of trips right. that we needed to begin the programs with, you know, more than there's not a demand in other neighborhoods. So in New York City, when we took over City Bike, we invested $100 million uh, to support an expansion that's still underway now. Yeah. And that's allowing us to bring bike share for the first time to the Bronx, for example. Mm to other neighborhoods in Queens and Brooklyn. In Chicago, we, we similarly invested um, a large amount of money in expansions. We're bringing the Divi program in Chicago citywide, which is incredible. Yeah. So I think, you know, we're really proud of that work and we have more work to do. Great. Going back to your point about taxpayer dollars, could you 
shed some light on how Lyft works with uh, cities and regional governments in the US um, to bring your bikes and, and scooters to the urban centers? Absolutely. And we have um, our preference is a long term contract with a city government um, that allows us to create you know, the time horizon you need to make the sort of program successful, have ridership grow. We have different types of contracts that we mm. that we have with different cities depending on their policy goals. Yeah. Um, and so in some cases, the city is purchasing the equipment and we're operating the program. In other cases, we provide the equipment and operate the program. Yeah. And I think the model is changing and we've seen in Europe actually that from my perspective is that there's been an increasing amount of public subsidy going into bike share programs to make mm. them successful. I think with scooters, we haven't seen those programs really mature towards a contract model yet. Yeah. We actually have you know, temporary permits in some cases uh, that are six months long, a year long. They're very transient. Mm. Um, so it'll be interesting in the next 10 years to see how scooters sort of become more mature and become integrated more into the, the micromobility success we've seen with bikes. Great. Similarly, do you think that perhaps scooters haven't become quite as successful yet because there's a perception that they're a greater safety risk to bikes? I think that's an interesting theory. I don't, I, 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 my general sense is that they're not successful because they're being regulated in a permit model that is not setting up a, an operator for success and it's not creating the public-private partnership between the city and the operator that we've seen in bike share, mm. number one. Number two, I think they're not as successful because they're not in stations. Right. They're free-floating and while I think the promise of free-floating uh, two years ago was that it you know, was, was free to a city, it came with no obligations, it could go anywhere, you didn't have to take any space. Yeah. We've seen the, the problems with that, right? We've seen programs disappear overnight. We've also seen the, uh, the scooters sort of negatively impact sidewalks and the public right-of-way, sure. whereas with stations in the bike share systems, you're creating space, you're taking it back from automobiles, yeah. and you're creating a network effect like transit that's allowed bike share trips to increase over time. So I think scooters need to get into the station one way or another. Um, and you know, in the long run, that means we'll build a charge in the station, yeah. which will be great for operations and for, for riders alike. Brilliant. What sort of safety features has Lyft implemented on its on its bikes and scooters? Absolutely, we you know we've built the um, the classic pedal bike that we operate in New York and in other markets is has been battle tested. It's yeah. it's in some cases on the ground for ten years. It's incredible. Right. It's designed for fleet use. It's designed to accommodate riders of all abilities and all sizes. Mm. Um, and so I think that's proven kind of the safety approach. Um, our new e-bike is really exciting and has retroreflective paint. Which, right. is, which is a really cool okay. safety feature. We've added the capacity for uh, the rider to get uh, directions via the sort of um, the bike itself, if they associate it with their phone, which is, which is cool. Mm. We obviously have great lights and we've made those lights bigger yeah. and, and bolder. Um, so I think, you know, the other part of safety that I should mention mm. is we work really closely with cities to make sure that they have all the information they need to see where bike ridership is happening yeah. so they can build bike lanes that are smart and reacting to demand. Mm. And that's a really powerful way that a micromobility provider can work with a city to sort of further the larger goal here, which is to make streets designed around people, not yeah. just cars. Yeah, to improve the infrastructure Correct. more broadly. Yeah. yeah. Um, given Lyft's work in ride sharing and scooters and bikes, do you foresee a future where no one actually privately owns a car in an urban center? And I think that's, that's a really good question. I think every city is a little bit different and I think we're sort of on a spectrum in terms of car dependency mm. as it is today. As a New Yorker, I never use a car, you yeah. know, and I, I never have. <laughs> car ownership in New York City is quite low, 
there are other cities in the world where you kind of need a car because the transit system hasn't been built up like New York City's, right? Yeah. And so I think what Lyft is trying to do is provide an, a mobile application experience that gives people the options they need to combine options in any given day to reduce dependency on the automobile. And I think by doing that, you're meeting people where they are and you're helping them make different choices that over time reduce the dependency on the vehicle itself. Yeah, brilliant. Caroline, that was super interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now we're talking to Julie Guac-Dupont, Director of Product Marketing and New Mobility at Arvel. Arvel is the car leasing subsidiary of French international banking group BNP Paribas. Julie, thank you for your time today. Could you tell us a bit more about Arvel, please? Yes, of course. Arval France is a full-service leasing company. We uh, rent around 347,000 vehicles in France. We have 1,400 employees and 14 locations in France, and we've been created about 30 years ago. So Arval is moving now moving from being a full-service leasing company to being a sustainable mobility service provider. So we, we are mm. changing completely uh, our strategy and we are now addressing 100% of our customers employees for all their trips whether they're professional or private trips. Great. What was the thinking behind the change in strategy? The regulations evolve. The uh, sustainability is more and more important to companies. Mm. Uh, city centers are now close to cars or have restrictions. Yeah. The law is, is uh, trying to um, force companies to be more sustainable and all that creates a, an environment that, it, that uh, pushes uh, people and companies to have more responsible um, kind of out, outlook and, and activities? Yes, exactly. And so um, our customers have been uh, asking us how we could accompany them into changing from 100% car mobility to more sustainable mobility. Mm. And so since about 10 years now, we've accompanied them by creating new services. So it's it has started with the car sharing that we've created more than 10 years ago. And then uh, in 2018, we've created a bike sharing solution. Mm. And um, we've had a partnership as well with Klaxit, which is a um, ride sharing uh, application mm -hmm. for uh, employees to go to work and come back. And we've also developed a leasing of bikes. Mm. And more recently, we're developing kick scooter sharing uh, service. And uh, our very last uh, development is a mass application that is called Arval Mobility App to uh, enable employees to move, move from point A to point B and, and providing them with the multimodal solutions to, to, to do their trips. Great. Could you explain a bit more about how the Mobility App works? Yes, of course. So we have, uh, as I told you earlier, several services. And what we've done is that we've, uh, for every services we've developed, we've, ha we've had a new app. Mm. And so at one point, we thought we need to integrate all those services into one single app. Right. So we found a partner uh, whose uh, job it was to create mass applications. And they've integrated all our Arval uh, mobility services into the app together with uh, public transport for from the 40 biggest cities in France 
and with as well taxi and VTC services and other public transportation services such as bikes, kick mm. scooters, uh, electric scooters. And so the employees of our uh, customers can now uh, choose to go from point A to point B using every possibility that there is in the app. The company can also attribute them a mobility credit mm -hmm. and uh, there is a law in France that uh, it, it, uh, enables a company to give employees a sustainable mobility credit that has to be used only for sustainable mobility means and it's free of uh, taxes uh, so uh, for the company and for the employees. So right. The app can deal with the wallets and the employees can move using these wallets and, and, and uh, take the right uh, mobility solutions uh, to, to use them. As well, it has a back office mm -hmm. and so the company can customize uh, which means employees can use for professional uh, trips. Right. Okay, for private trips people can choose whatever mobility solution they want. Okay. But if the company considers that maybe kick scooter is a bit, um, is a bit dangerous, mm. they, can, um, they can remove it from the application for professional use. So it's totally uh, customizable for the customer. Great. Um, the pandemic obviously caused a huge amount of disturbance for corporate fleets. Um, how has Arval managed to, you know, keep its customers moving? So that was a great challenge, of course, uh, and I think many companies have faced a, a lot of challenges uh, over these last uh, two years and especially now this year. Um, the first thing we've tried to do is keep our customers moving. And as the, uh, it was really difficult to have uh, delivery times, uh, acceptable delivery times for new vehicles, what we've done is we've accompanied our customers in uh, renewing their contracts and right. making them uh, longer uh, so that they could keep moving. And uh, what we've done also is provide them with alternative solutions such, such as car sharing, for example. Mm -hmm. So instead of having one car per person, we could accompany them and saying maybe you can mutualize your fleet and open it to everybody. And so it's easier because um, you have a better use of the fleet and that you don't need to order so many new vehicles. Um, we can also accompany them with alternative solutions such as bikes mm -hmm. that we've developed in 2020, uh, Bikelys. So we, we are trying to help them with many different ways. Another thing that we do is if they really need to order a new vehicle that maybe will be delivered only in six to eight months time. Mm -hmm. We have a service that's called mid-term rental and uh, we have a fleet that is, uh, that is al always available and right. we provide them with a pre-leasing vehicle to help them wait for the arrival of the new vehicle. Okay. So th these are a whole range of services that we try to provide our customers to help them in that uh, pandemic and in the uh, shortage we've, we've known uh, uh, with the components. Great. And finally, what does mobility look like in 10 years time? Is car ownership going to be a thing of the past and is everyone going to be on e-scooters or is it a bit more complex than that? I think it's a lot more complex. In France, we still have in the in the countryside uh, many people that can't live without a car, and and I think it's it would be utopist to think that in in ten years time there won't be cars anymore. I'm sure there still will be car, mm. uh, but I think in ten years time 
the, the key would be to have the right mobility solution for the right usage. Mm -hmm. People will not only use one type of mobility, they will use several types of mobilities and each one for the right purpose. Mm. I think that's what we, we need to, to try to push. Mm. Uh, the, the employee that takes the car to do five kilometers uh, morning and night every day with an empty car, this one should maybe change behavior. Right. But people that do hundreds of kilometers to uh, salespeople, for example, mm. in a car with samples in the back of the car, they will still be uh, need to be able to do that. So it's, it's, a, it's more complex than that, of course. And I think we will see new developments as well of uh, maybe uh, autonomous vehicles. So there will be still a lot of change, I think, and maybe some that we don't see yet. I don't know, but uh, I think it will keep moving and, uh, and uh, change over the years. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time today, Julie. Enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you very much. You too. Bye-bye. Up next, we have Sam Jones, Micromobility Director of Serco. Serco, of course, is the huge British-based public services company that is perhaps best known for managing London's Santander cycles, though you might know them better as the Boris Bikes. Sam, thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Can you tell us a bit more about Serco, the breadth of the company's offerings, and why it's different to other bike-sharing services? Um, yeah, absolutely. So. As you, as you mentioned, Serco is a global provider of um, government services. Uh, so we, we contract with governments around the world. We're present in four key divisions. So UK and Europe, um, Asia Pacific, North America and the Middle East. Uh, and what differentiates us in the micromobility uh, sector is the fact that we are a, um, a company with a, a complete public service ethos yeah. so we contract with with governments we're not a micro mobility brand mm. um, so what that means is is that we design build and operate solutions for authorities yeah. uh, so they can create their own brand for their own citizens london cycle hire is a really good example of that where yeah. we uh, design build and operated a scheme for tfl and if you look at the scheme's evolution over the last 10 years it is now as as common as a london bus yeah and it, it's uh, synonymous uh, with the city, Londoners love it, tourists love it, and it's, it's TFLs, yeah. and it's the citizens, it's not ours, and we're really proud of that, and mm. that's how uh, we like to position ourselves in the model, in, in the market, sorry. Yeah. Um, and uh, we, we believe that micromobility should be delivered like a public service, mm. and we love to work with authorities that believe that as well. Great. Can you tell us a bit more about Serco's Lakeness partnerships? Are they all with public bodies as, as you mentioned and, and in which cities are they going to be taking place? Yes yeah, so um, our latest uh, our last scheme uh, launched in the West Midlands a year ago so we've just had uh, the one year anniversary mm. um, and it, uh, applying a very similar uh, method of mobilisation to London we, we, we designed built and operate the scheme on behalf of the West Midlands mm. um, and that's been a, a, a really uh, su successful start um, yeah. We are yeah, really proud to have um, developed a solution for the West Midlands that has a really large supply chain mm. in, in the region. So uh, Pashley Cycles, who uh, uh, design and manu manufacture the bikes, move a, much of the supply chain to the region. Yeah. So 
bike design, bike assembly, plastics, uh, I think baskets as well, when all the docking stations are mm. manufactured and built in the region. So we're creating jobs, not just in our, in our immediate operation, yeah. in the supply chain as well and that's a, a really a really great feature yeah. and keeping it local must you know also reduce the carbon footprint and things like that as well right yeah absolutely what one of our, our key focuses is on obviously redu- reducing um, um like journey times yeah. and uh, the amount of emissions that not just we uh, create for our operation yeah. but also that our supply chain does as well i mean that's a, a it is a primary focus it's essential that micro mobility is sustainable mm. um, and that doesn't just extend to delivery, it extends to how we bring the solutions to, to the authorities as well. Yeah. How is Serco working to create a kind of safer service for riders, uh, pedestrians, drivers alike? Yeah, I mean, safety is central to, to scheme design and it, it starts from um, advising authorities and planning the right locations mm. on the, in the... Uh, safest possible locations yeah. uh, for, for, for users. And then from a technology perspective, we um, introduce like, laser light technology. Uh, we work very closely with Bell, who are a, a t- our technology provider, mm. um, uh, and their laser light is a leading safety feature in, in the market. That, um, I don't know if you've seen it, it projects a green laser onto the, the road that has been mm. proven to really help. Yeah, and that, and that shoots out from the front of the bike. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and that, that's, that's a feature on all of our bikes, both in London and, and in the West Midlands. We have about 14,000 assets all together in operation right. across both those two, two schemes with, with that feature. Um, and also, I think, I think we, we, we operate e-bikes and pedal bikes, but predominantly pedal bikes. Yeah. Um, and um, they've been, they're more adopted than, than obviously the newer micro-mobility mm. um, assets that we see today. And I think the... The safety perception of pedal bikes is probably in a slightly better place than right. some of the competing assets at the moment. So, the combination of good design, technology, and stringent safety standards as well. So, from asset from an asset perspective, we uh, contract with our authorities to guarantee them uh, 100% service records every mm. year, always just full, full quality control, and that, that, that those three things are uh, the, the way we would achieve that. How can companies such as yourselves help governments and countries achieve their net zero emissions goals? Is it simply through providing bikes which takes cars off the road or is there a bit more to it? I I think there's more to it. I think there's the really big um, accessibility focus. Mm. Um, Schemes need to be more accessible, so the industry needs to do more to create modal shift. And that uh, is only achieved through strong partnerships with authorities. So the barrier entry has has to be lowered. Um, and um, they need to be very competitively priced. Mm. They need to be located in all neighbourhoods, not just more affluent neighbourhoods. Yeah. And uh, by doing that, we'll achieve more modal shift and we'll take users away from their personal cars. And that, that, that's how we'd achieve that. Great. And Sam, Serco is the longest serving provider of cycle hire services in the UK. And the, the scheme first launched in 2010, am I right? Correct, yeah. Why do you think attitudes towards micromobility have changed? As, as you said, they're, they're now as common as London buses. Why yeah. do you think that shift has happened? And what does the next 10 years look like? So, um, so I think the, the attitude has changed um, through high quality delivery, dense networks. So in London, the prevalence of the scheme yeah. is a real push factor. Um, 
And over the next 10 years, I think the key change that I, I think we will see is more holistic micro-mobility opportunities. So authorities not saying, I want a bike share scheme or mm. I want scooters. I think they will look at it more in the round of how can I move people more sustainably and yeah. I expect to see that change over the next 10 years. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time today, Sam. Thank you. Uh, and enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you very much. You too. Up next, we have Dmitry Pivovarov, Vice President of Rentals for Bolt. Bolt, of course, is best known for its ride-sharing business, but the business has been expanding into different sectors. Dmitry has been instrumental in driving that change. Dmitry, thank you for your time today at Autonomy. Um, you launched the Bolt Drive subscription service in just four months during the pandemic. What challenges were involved in the launch and why was it important that Bolt continue to expand its modes of transport? Challenges, well, so first of all, of course, it was difficult to do it in just four months, right? We had to assemble the team, we had to build all the software from scratch, and that's actually a record, industry record time, right, to do it. Uh, yet we managed, so after, um, after six months after the launch, we... Uh, running at like 75% market share actually so I can say mm. it's uh, it's a pretty successful launch yeah and um, in general in terms of challenges um, globally it's more about how cities are welcoming or not welcoming car sharing right because we can build all the tech we can have the team we can have the cars but if cities are not allowing it to happen it's not happening right yeah of course so uh, I think a very good example here is um, uh, you can compare maybe London and Moscow right mm. so Moscow actually seriously incentivized having car sharing because they had crazy well, they still have crazy traffic issues they have parking issues mm. and what they did they made parking for car sharing almost free right so of course people now have to pay for their own car when they park it they don't want to do that mm. they switch to car sharing where they don't pay for parking and that works uh, like people abandoning their private cars moving on to car sharing because it's more convenient and it's even cheaper mm. and uh, another example is of course when you have first of all coverage of the whole city right you have to negotiate with uh, every borough separately mm. So it creates this like Swiss cheese uh, solution, which is not convenient. And then the parking is expensive, right? Mm. And it's not like uh, car sharing will benefit from cheaper parking. They will just translate the savings to users in the end, right? So if you're having super expensive parking for car sharing, it becomes super expensive to use it. People stick to their private cars. So for us, it's the, just the, big, the biggest challenge is to educate cities that, look, we're trying to achieve the same thing. Mm. We're trying to move you, uh, people away from private cars into shared vehicles. And um, in terms of why we launched it, mm. uh, again, exactly the same reason, right? So Bolt's vision is to move away people from personal cars because they're the biggest contributor to pollution, right. to like all sorts of pollution, tailpipe, particulate matter, right? Not to mention traffic. Mm. Um, and to do that, we have to cover all the needs, all the use cases for mobility that people have. Mm. And that means they have short trips, they have longer trips, sometimes they need to carry stuff, so they still need to use cars. So that's why we added the service, right? Because uh, with right hailing you cannot cover all your needs. You still have longer trips and yeah. you need car sharing for that. Great. Um, developing your own e-scooters normally involves quite a significant cost compared to using a, a third-party alternative. Why does Bolt choose to go down this path? Uh, yes, it actually requires um, investment upfront, mm. but in the long term, it's actually financially beneficial, depending on your scale, of yeah. course, right? With our scale, when we have uh, 100,000 scooters last year, we'll have more than 200,000 scooters this year. At this scale, it already pays off, because you have this uh, margin that you pay to the third party, uh, yeah. so you save on that. But this was not the main reason. Actually, the first reason why we went there is for the speed of iteration. 
because what we saw when we work with uh, some of our partners is that they were very slow to react to changes. So we wanted to add some feature to, let's say, our IoT. It would take them half a year to do it. Right. If we have the firmware ourselves, we can do it in a week, right? Mm -hmm. So it's much, much faster, and we can iterate much faster and improve our solutions uh, much faster. And uh, sorry, there is uh, one more thing. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a third reason. It's mm. the quality control, right? Because uh, we uh, own the whole supply chain, and we have our quality engineers involved at every step. When we're sourcing the batteries, when we're like, uh, uh, assembling the scooters and, and, and using them, right? So that overall like, improves the quality a lot. You have a range of safety measures built into your scooters and you introduced a, a first-of-its-kind tandem riding prevention system. Is there a limit to how far scooter safety can go? For example, would it be viable to have a kind of zero crash policy or anything like that? So the thing is that like, there are certain things you can do with uh, technological solutions. Mm. So we introduced, for example, the tandem riding detection, uh, which is based on the model that infers kind of how heavy the scooter becomes all of a sudden. Uh, we are doing the reckless riding detection. So in general, we're trying to actually approach the issues that uh, people actually have when it comes to safety and not just like random solutions. Good example would be turning indicators, which right. actually solves none of the problems. Actually, it creates probably more problems because now car drivers have an expectation that turning indicators will be used, and if the rider is not using them, that potentially can create a problem. Mm. Tandem riding, reckless driving, it all creates actual problems. People actually get hurt when they do that. Same with the beginner mode that we introduced, because more than 30% of um, accidents happen on the first ride on the scooter when people don't know how to ride it. Of course. So that's why we introduced the beginner mode. Now, in the end, like we can do all sorts of things through technology, but some things are outside of our control because there is still a rider mm. who is controlling the vehicle. So we can make it completely safe, right? And this is uh, where um, someone take the best practices from the car industry. And uh, the best practices are that cities set the environment, they set the rules and uh, they execute on uh, those rules being followed, right? So yeah. if you're driving drunk, you're getting punished if you're driving a car, right? Yeah. Not the same thing right now with if you're driving a bike or a scooter. But of course, like the biggest, uh, biggest difference and the biggest elephant probably in the room is that um, infrastructure yeah. is the biggest uh, leverage thing you can have. Because what you see with e-bikes, with scooters, is that the, uh, the, the most kind of you know, tragic or severe accidents happen when a, a micromobility vehicle collides with a car. Yeah. So the, the best way to avoid that is to have segregated bike lanes or dedicated lanes for micromobility. Mm. And that actually saves both the pedestrians because people aren't using scooters anymore on the uh, pavement mm. because it's inconvenient if you have a dedicated ro uh, road, right? Yeah. And at the same time, it protects uh, the riders from cars, which are heavy and fast. Do you see a future where safety systems become standardized across the micro-mobility industry um, instead of the kind of current situation where companies are taking a bit more of a, an ad hoc approach? Well, some features definitely need to be standardized, and that's already happening because uh, cities are in um, charge of setting uh, the no-go zones. They tell operators where scooters shouldn't be parked, shouldn't be ridden, mm. maybe some slow downs where it's like uh, the speed is limited to 6 kilometers, 10 kilometers. So that definitely should come from cities and should be standardized. Uh, what we're also seeing is that uh, some cities are now running tenders, and usually in those tenders they set specific criteria, mm. like what should be on a scooter uh, to, to pass uh, the tender. Uh, the problem there is that when you put it like this, the operators simply make it like 
enough to pass and they don't have any incentives to improve safety after that. Mm. So in my opinion, it shouldn't be fully standardized by the cities. It should rather be an open market and then micromobility operators will start competing with each other, right? Because the safer your service is, the more likely for users yeah. uh, to, to prefer it over others. But when you have a tender again, you select three operators, they're okay, we're done. Like there's no need to improve further, right? Yeah. Um, and my final question, Dimitri, um, Bolt is now the largest micromobility company in Europe, working across 170 cities in 20 countries. Why, in your view, has the company been so successful and so quickly? I think it stems mostly from our historical approach to doing expansion. So in the very beginnings, Bolt never had a lot of money to expand, right? And uh, when we launched uh, Micromobility in 2018, we first tried to validate if it's a viable business model or not. Mm. So that meant we had a very slow expansion. Whereas, as you remember, everyone else in the micromobility industry, they just raised hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars and they just quickly expanded everywhere before they validated that the model can even work or not from the business perspective. The way we did, though, we started slow, we tested it, we found, okay, this works, and then we expanded it to, let's say, 50 cities in 2020, mm. then 170 cities in 2021. And uh, whenever we do that, because we have the lean team and this frugal model, we can actually translate translate those savings to our riders, right? Mm. So that's very important because whenever we expand, we quickly get adoption because we're the most affordable player, simply because we don't have this bloated overhead of HQ costs, right? Mm. Because we didn't have money to invest uh, a lot in that to begin with. And that, of course, increases our adoption very quickly. Mm. And on top of that, we have this uh, synergy between verticals, uh, which is a significant thing because you have this uh, multimodality in the app and it's very convenient for users to choose the best option to move around for, for a given trip. So they need to jump between different apps and again, it's, it's uh, super convenient for them. Great. Thank you very much for your time today, Dimitri. Thank you. Up next, we're speaking to Cornel Staub, European Business Development Manager for Last Mile Deliveries at Adax Motors. Adax, based in Dierlik, around 70 kilometres west of Brussels, builds 100% electric utility vehicles. Cornell, thanks for your time today. Could you tell us a bit more about Adax's vehicles and what makes them stand out from the competition? Thank you for having me, Tom. Uh, yes, uh, Adax is a Belgian-based uh, uh, <coughs> Belgian company. Uh, producing small electric utility vehicles, uh, which are, as you said, 100% uh, uh, electric. Uh, which are proud. Uh, we are proud of uh, its uh, own design, Belgian uh, design and uh, manufacturing in Belgium. And what it uh, in, in what it stands out from the market is uh, uh, that it is a compact. A small utility vehicle that allows you uh, to get into the city centers uh, and uh, deliver products um, uh, in a, with a quick turnaround uh, very flexibly and uh, with uh, uh, the small footprint uh, uh, allows you to park the car, get out, deliver your produce, uh, get back and uh, be on the road again. Brilliant. What challenges did you have to overcome when designing and developing the vehicles? Uh, there were multiple challenges at the beginning, I believe. Um, uh, a big challenge was uh, to uh, find the batteries that were uh, um, sufficiently long-lasting mm. and uh, had no memory effect. Uh, one of the reasons uh, is 
which you have chosen the lithium iron phosphate batteries, uh, which have no uh, memory uh, effect and mm. uh, uh, allow us also to uh, repair the battery in case of need uh, due to its uh, compartmental um, uh, design. And uh, uh, further challenges we had at the very beginning is uh, to have uh, a reliable spare part supply mm. and uh, uh, the after service component uh, uh, in place for the car. Great. Um, as you mentioned, you use lithium iron phosphate batteries. Um, why did you choose those over kind of traditional um, other lithium iron batteries? And what sort of range do you get from them? Yes, our, uh, our, our range on the batteries that uh, we are getting is up to 132 kilometers VLTP. Uh, we have chosen the lithium iron phosphate battery for its uh, cellular setup, uh, mm. no memory effect, and uh, uh, the, the warranty of uh, five years that we can provide on those batteries. Brilliant. What does the coming year hold for ADAX? Uh, we are in a very aggressive uh, scale-up and exp expansion phase. Uh, our uh, vehicles are being seen as uh, uh, adding value, especially in last mile uh, distribution, enabling our customers to deliver uh, flexibly and efficiently. And uh, we are looking uh, with a lot of excitement to the future. Great. When you mention your customers, which sort of companies do you work with? Uh, we are looking with uh, with uh, retailers, for example, uh, who also, as a result of COVID, moved uh, from uh, physical store presence into into uh, actually delivering uh, shopping into homes. We are looking at post and parcel companies, mm. and we are also having presence in the municipality and green space area where you would be using our car for uh, uh, maintaining uh, larger parks, uh, campuses, or uh, inner city uh, inner city. Uh, for example, waste management. Great. And my final question, Cornell. Um, how has the manufacturing industry changed over the past 10 years and what does the future of the industry look like? Uh, manufacturing of the vehicles itself, you mm. mean? Yeah. Uh, I think what we have seen is uh, there is a lot of, uh, uh, certainly for ourselves, we are sourcing our uh, uh, components uh, mainly from Europe. Uh, that has helped us uh, 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 during the supply chain breakdowns mm. uh, uh, in, in the COVID uh, crisis. And, uh, and uh, we, we continue to focus on local sourcing because uh, we are proud of uh, the local manufacturing and the local supply of uh, spare parts. Mm. How much of an impact did that have on your business with the supply chain crisis? Uh, we, were, we were not so much exposed uh, because we were not reliant on uh, 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 spare parts and, uh, and uh, supplies from uh, outside of Europe, uh, but certainly it had some impact, but it was limited. Great. Thank you very much for your time. Enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you, Tom. Joining us now is... Bharat Devanathan from Inverse, a company that specializes in connectivity and data analysis for the mobility sector. Bharat, thank you very much for joining us here at Autonomy Paris. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Could you briefly explain what Inverse does and offers its mobility clients? Yeah, so Inverse basically uh, helps in digitizing a vehicle. Uh, so we, uh, most vehicles are not connected. Mm. So we help digitize the vehicles and help them connect uh, to wherever they need to be connected. And we also uh, provide uh, what we call a software-defined fleet. Mm. And we, we connect to vehicles in two ways. We, by either putting a telematics device in it, which we manufacture, and the other way is also 
directly to OEM APIs uh, yeah. from manufacturers such as Ford, Stellantis, BMW, and so on. And and all of this is under one API. Um, and this is a product uh, that you know we are offering to all of our customers now. Mm. The ability to connect to vehicles. Um, and you know, treat them uh, like they would in, in a fleet. Yeah, and when you say vehicles, we're talking about cars exclusively? No, uh, cars, mopeds, uh, kick scooters, uh, e-bikes, so al almost any kind. Really? We, we are not doing drones yet, but <laughs> everything else. <yeah. laughs> really, really runs the gamut then. Yeah. Um, you help kind of mobility operators launch, operate and scale their businesses. Which of those stages is the most challenging for you for you as a business, but also for your clients, and how do you overcome those challenges? Yeah, and I think, uh, so this is actually, it's hard to choose, uh, right. but it's also, I think, the benefit of being in the industry for the last 25 years, mm. is that we have seen clients uh, grow, everybody starts small, yeah. uh, nobody starts with, you know, thousands <laughs> of vehicles, everyone starts small, uh, and in the beginning, it's it's launching is a problem, um, yeah. and then, then scaling, and operating, and but because we've been with different clients for a long time, we uh, share the experience that mm. we have and help uh, like new operators now. When when they launch, we help them sort of or, or tell them some like good practices that they right. can use to do. So and that's also um, I, I think it gives us a lot of pleasure to see that a lot of our clients started small and now are very profitable businesses. I mean, mm. uh, uh, a lot of. Customers you see here at Autonomy, like Get Around, for example, yeah. started with us many years ago, and and today they have you know uh, thousands and thousands of vehicles uh, on on our fleets, um, and and many more customers like this that start small and and, and are going out. So, we, we we like to support them in the whole process, um, mm. and uh, yeah, and it gives us gives us a lot of joy to do that. Great, you were speaking today uh, at the show about finding the hidden value in companies' data sets. Mm -hmm. Can you explain how inverse? helps its customers to find that value. Yeah, so uh, the, the, the earlier I spoke about this, uh, you know, digitizing fleets, so mm -hmm. the, the API that we provide, uh, provides very reliable and uh, valuable data and yeah. real-time data about about vehicles. Uh, what's happening in the vehicles, uh, like sim simple example could be, what's the mileage in the vehicle, what's the GPS position, what's the fuel level, if it's an electric vehicle, what's the state of charge. Um, and also uh, some more advanced features like is the door open or closed or any windows open, things like that that are really important for our customers and shared mobility operators to give a you know mm. smooth experience to to their customers. Yeah. So that's something we provide. We also have now recently started uh, have a feature which we call driving analysis, right? Which helps uh, uh, our customers know how the cars are being driven. Mm. Uh, is there any harsh braking, cornering, uh, speeding, and so on? So they can monitor uh, this and incentivize customers to drive better, or in some cases also have take some punitive action if right. customers. Uh, yeah. So this is also something that our customers find really useful. The other, the other other thing about us is that the customers, uh, our uh, solutions, work uh, across all vehicles. So right. we analyze vehicles every every week, and tons and tons of uh, vehicles are added to our database every day. And uh, we are, today we work with about 700 to 800 different vehicles. Um, and so our technology is actually uh, agnostic, vehicle yeah. agnostic. It can work across the gamut of vehicles. And we get comprehensive data from the vehicles, like like I just shared, like uh, mm. you know, uh, from the canvas, from sensors. We can also do temperature sensing, weather, uh, humidity, yeah. uh, pollution, um, and also tons of uh, things on the car. Yeah, yeah. And so, would your clients be looking to monetize that information and data? Yeah, I, I think they can use it in in many ways. Uh, most of them use it right now to to streamline their operations and right. reduce their costs. Um, some of them are working with the cities that they operate in to provide this data to them. Okay. Um, 
uh, and in some cases monetize and some cases not yeah. um, because it's also useful for the city to get this information yeah. um, on a real-time basis. So kind of working smarter and more collaboratively. Exactly, exactly. Great. And how do you expect the European mobility sector and landscape to change over the coming decade based on your insights and data that you collect? Yeah. So one thing that we see uh, happening, uh, and it's also, I would say, shades of that have started happening now, is uh, you know the merging of business models. So mm. today you have car sharing um, or moped sharing, then you have car subscription, um, you have uh, peer-to-peer, so you know, if I have a car, I can put it on a network and someone else can use it. Yeah. In the UK, for example, there's a Hia car and get around yeah, yeah. and car share uh, that does things like that. And so what we see is that uh, the, we want to enable the utilization of the asset across these different business models. So if any one of these, if a car sharing player feels that he needs more cars, instead of buying more cars, uh, we want to enable him to look at other players who are in car subscription um, or peer-to-peer and say and add cars from there, mm. which may be idle on, on, their biz, uh, on their business model. So instead of any of these players wanting to add cars on their own or add any vehicles on their own, how about we share the vehicles uh, in the entire ecosystem, right? Yeah. So, so that the, the vehicles in a city don't go up, but the mobility options for the citizen goes up. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's something we really see happening, and we we are starting to enable that uh, with different players in the cities. What we also see is digitization. So a lot of uh, cars are being connected, vehicles are connected. Um, I, I think a key, a physical key, will be a thing of the past uh, pretty right. soon uh, as well. And a lot of uh, players uh, also are focusing on sustainability, and uh, that's also our focus. And that's why you know mm. utilizing the same asset across all players in the city is something we're very keen on. So that's an angle that uh, that. I would say is getting more focus in recent years sure. and we are happy to play a part there. Great. Well, it certainly sounds exciting. Bharat, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And with that, our first episode from the Autonomy Paris trade show has come to an end. Do not fear, however, we still have excellent chats with car-sharing startup iMove and micromobility company Voy, as well as a super interesting discussion with Kanabi, the Confederation for the European Bicycle Industry. In the meantime, however, thank you for joining us and don't forget to follow Auto Futures on Twitter, LinkedIn and to subscribe and rate our podcast wherever you listen.